There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have John Ruffalo, the founder and managing partner of Mavericks Private Equity and a pillar of Canada's tech and innovation sectors. John's also the founder and former CEO of Omer's Ventures, which is the venture capital arm of the Pension Plan for Ontario Municipal Employees. Under John's leadership, Omer's Ventures invested over $500 million in more than 40 disruptive technology companies, including a few you might have heard of, such as Shopify, Wattpad, or Hootsuite. A former partner with Deloitte, John is also co-founder and vice chair of the Council of Canadian Innovators, a non-profit organization dedicated to helping high-growth Canadian technology firms scale up globally. So we're going to talk about that, too. John has received many accolades throughout his career, including being celebrated as one of Toronto's most influential people by Toronto Life magazine and named Canada's most powerful business person by Canadian Business Magazine in 2014. With great power comes great responsibility. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much, Rick. I've had a chance to talk to you a number of times through my career as a technology columnist with the National Post, but we never had a chance to sit down and just uh, talk and, and, and pick your brain. So I'm really excited about this conversation. But the, uh, the way we start out here at the Startup Canada podcast is we make every question one that is uh, top of mind for every entrepreneur, which is what are the top pieces of advice or help or tips that you hope entrepreneurs will take away from this conversation today? No, I, I would say the, the, the one tip is a, is a tip that I've been saying uh, for many years, but really up until recently, I've had to live it uh, uh, from an extreme perspective. And that's really about following your passion. And, you know, when 
I've been looking for years in trying to fund entrepreneurs and really trying to get to the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. And when I discover that it has nothing to do with money, fame, status, but rather this passion of solving a problem that's been gnawing at them for years, and they will go to all lengths to uh, to pivot around any obstacles that they run into. I think that is the greatest advice that I could give to an entrepreneur. And especially when you start to see great people perhaps not running or building the businesses that really make them uh, really care about what they're doing. Interesting. I, building on that, I've got to ask you, I know that for many entrepreneurs, the the first time they have they build a successful startup and they have an exit, then they have a chance, they've got the capital, the experience, the connections to maybe do something even more significant the second time around. Do you find that they pick a problem that they're just as passionate about the second time? Or does it do things change when you say, okay, I've got a whole career ahead of me. I got to do something. I've got some resources. Let's build something. How does that change the, the, that sense of mission? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and I would have to look back over the last 10 years and look at the serial entrepreneurs, the ones that, um, I've worked with generally the second or third business opportunity, um, is really the opportunity to build it big. And by that, I mean, perhaps the first or second opportunity weren't really successful either at all or at the scale that they had imagined and they want to go to bat one more time. What I don't think I've experienced yet and, um, you know, and I'm sure I'm missing some folks, but I haven't experienced someone who's hit the home run right out of the gate. Um, and then come back for something even bigger. So, you know, kind of in the, the vein of an Elon Musk as an example. And so I, I can't conclude whether, uh, as Canadians, whether we're satisfied with that first big win or it just was the luck of the draw of folks who I've interacted with. Tell me, John, have you seen many entrepreneurs that when they solve the problem the first time, they go ahead and solve the problem all over again the second time. That, that, that's, that's a theme I remember seeing from uh, a couple of entrepreneurs that I've known over the past like 20 years, seeing the arc of their careers. And I just think that's really smart if they can do it twice in the same field because they've got the connections, they've got the resources. And uh, as soon as the non-competes are done, yes. they're right back at it. Yeah, no, that, that is more common. Uh, and the reason is, uh, as well, too, if you had a particular passion to solve the problem, you sold it and doing it again. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one example that I invested in was Psalm Safe. Um, and it was really the first investment to kind of validate my strategy on why I built Mavericks private equity in the first place. But the reason why I picked him, here's a guy 
that's been in the industry for almost 20 years, built uh, uh, Claymore mutual funds, had a successful exit. And uh, when we were chatting about his next vision, which was purpose, uh, his comment was, uh, I still haven't solved the problem that I really wanted to solve. Oh, and by the way, I can do it in half the time that I did it before and double up the progress in half that time. And I invested it in him. And that is a great example of that passion and that purpose, pardon the pun, was there uh, always from the inception and it never uh, never got away from him. Right. I actually don't know Sam's story very well. You, as you mentioned to the company that he, he moved into the second time around was Purpose Investments. Can you explain what was the opportunity that he, that, that he saw? What was the problem he was trying to solve twice? Yeah, the, the real problem is when you look at the average Canadian, um, we have, you know, we're obviously from a demographics perspective, you know, uh, we have a, uh, the aging of the population. If you are a person that's not part of a defined benefit plan, which is usually now associated with a public sector worker, um, there are a lot of Canadians that that uh, are going to have difficulty that their life is going to outlast their dollars. And he's created a lot of financial products. In fact, uh, most recently had launched a very special life insurance product. And the title of the product basically is uh, just in case you're worried about outliving your money and, and has created a financial product. And, um, and you know, that's pretty on the nose, isn't it? Well, it, it is right. And, and it is, it is a big problem. And, you know, for, for a lot of folks, uh, when you actually see their investing, uh, or, or what they're investing in, they tend to be extremely expensive. And when you look at the rate of return after fees, uh, they're actually behind just inflation gains and they're actually losing money. And this is kind of the average Canadian. And, and you know, we as a society are going to collectively pay for it one way or the other. Exactly. Okay. That's a, a, a real purpose. And Correct. Uh, I'm, I thank you, thank you for sharing that narrative with me because I, I never really connected uh, that there. So let's share another narrative. You started out as an accountant and, and became a technology consultant, and then you became a technology power broker. Um, tell me about the arc of your career. How did you go from the uh, from professional to professional power broker? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have used that term on a power broker, but but uh, let let me start off on the art. Uh, and of course, just like everything else, it was perfectly pre-planned, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> let me explain what happened. It was 1992, and uh, Rick, if you remember, that's kind of the the pit of the 91-92 recession, which was really devastating in Canada. And I was four years into my stint as a manager at Arthur Anderson, uh, which was a top accounting firm. Um, and uh, I was bored out of my mind 
because in 1992, where I was starting to get trained to really execute on transactions, there weren't any uh, because of the recession. And I was also very, very frustrated that as uh, at the time I was a, a trained uh, tax professional and I was didn't understand how certain decisions were being made. And what I really wanted to do was to focus in on a particular industry so that I could actually hang with the C-level folks to better understand how and why they're operating their business and nothing to do with you know taxation per se. And I started off with financial services and started to quickly realize as a 25-year-old kid, uh, my ability to hang with, I don't know, bank CEOs at 25 was probably pretty remote. And I started going down further industries and I said, hey, you know what, how about this technology industry? We don't even have an industry practice here. And the senior partners who had no clue about technology uh, basically said, yeah, yeah, you know what, why don't you go ahead and build that kind of snickering a little bit because there's nothing there. We don't understand it. So I go off on my merry way. And And the 28 year olds were happy to talk with you. Yeah. And for the next three years, I was in the wilderness uh, with not a dollar to show for it uh, until there was one critical moment. And it was the uh, end of 94, beginning of 95. And uh, Mosaic unleashed the Netscape browser. And all of a sudden, that business that no one gave a crap about exploded. And I was still a relatively junior 20-something, generating uh, incredible amounts of revenues that were unprecedented in the firm. Wow. What were some of the companies that you were associated with back then? Um, Well, the one- You were working with. Well, one that actually sticks out on my mind is a company, I don't know if you actually ever remember them, but they would have been what Drop or uh, Dropbox or or Box would be today. And it was a secure email document retrieval system. And it was called DocSpace. Have you heard, do you recall that? I, I, I remember them, yes, through the haze of time. Yeah. Yes. So one of my ex-colleagues at Arthur Anderson, uh, amazing guy, and he's like a brother to me. His name is Evan Krapko. Um, he wanted me to leave Arthur Anderson to be the president of this tech startup. And I kind of looked at it. And I was like, I don't even understand what you're doing. So I'll tell you what. Um Instead of me leaving my job, I will be your advisor. And for the next five years, um, uh, Evan uh, just built this company uh, and we sold it to Critical Path uh, for, I, you know what, I can't even remember, it was, I think it was uh, 800 million Canadian uh, uh, dollars equivalent. Wow. And this would have been, uh, on it closed on the day of the peak of the NASDAQ. And I want to say it was March like 5th, 20, uh, uh, 2000. Uh, I remember that day. Well, yes. And that was the day of the closing and it was an unbelievable sale. Uh, and then everything went downhill from there. <laughs> Timing is everything. It's everything. Say. It's always yeah. in a cycle and you, you know, and that's the biggest thing that I've learned, you know, as an investor, et cetera, I pay uh, 
close attention to macro cycles, very close, as opposed to the micro investing, because you will see that in technology, and right now we're at, I think, at such an apex that we've got our boots hanging over the cliff looking down. That sounds scary. What does that mean? <laughs> well, that means that, you know, you look at the supply and demand of capital and right now in the technology industry, I think we have the greatest mismatch for the supply of capital to the limited amount of, of demand. And, and the supply side is particularly being generated by the zero cost of capital in the U.S. and the printing of U.S. dollars. Um, and so funds are, are just raising unbelievable amounts of money, but they're forced to deploy it. And it's this rush to try to find that next big company, and they're overcapitalizing them uh, at you know stratospheric values. That you know I, I'm all for the entrepreneur raising the capital, but the math just doesn't work from an investor perspective. There is no math that's working in so many of these, and you know it's it's predicated on a greater fool theory. And, you know, right now, a lot of the retail investors are going to be the greater fools holding the bag, which is desperately or which is very concerning to me. And, you know, I am a long term optimist in the technology and innovation world. But as an investor, you really got to watch uh, where your entry point is on these investments, because at the end of the day, you won't be able to make money or the levels uh, uh, that are required for your investors. Sounds a bit like today's housing market in Canada. It's exactly like today's housing market, right? And it's being fueled by cheap capital. And we all know it's going to end. What we don't know is, well, how long will it be? And the famous words that I love to see is, but this time it's different. And... <laughs> I bet against that every time and I've made my very my most money that I've made in the public circles has been three times only in 20 years 2001 2008 and and 2020 were the three times that I bet against where the the market was thinking and then scooped up opportunities at you know phenomenal prices um so that's why i just say i just kind of watch that uh very closely because when you're investing you know as a general rule despite your performance generally speaking you're neither a genius or nor you're a fool you're somewhere in between generally so don't get fooled in the market cycle and just understand where you are in that cycle, uh, place your bets based on the cycle, but then also understand that, you know, your, your success of a bet is partly predicated on, you know, making a good bet, but also understanding the mic, the macro cycle. Right. So keeping all that in mind, tell me just a little bit about Mavericks private equity and, and what the, uh, uh, what that represents to you after everything you've done and and accomplished in this sector, you decided to start your start your own company. What 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 was behind that? 
Yeah, it was really the completion of a three-part problem that I was trying to solve starting from 2010. So this is just the capping of the problem. Um, When I built Omer's Ventures, the problem um, that I was trying to solve is how do you get companies, you know, startups uh, going from zero revenues to, you know, $10 million dollars. And that's what I call the, that's kind of where your seed series A, you know, at least classically would focus in on, which is really building the product. And for about three years, that was my focus. And then you quickly saw that the market started to shift and there was a lot of companies that were able to get from zero to 10. So I embarked really on the second phase, which was uh, how do you get companies from the $10 million to about the $100 million. So this is really the scaling up stage and where you really move from selling products on a one-to-one basis to a one-to-many. And and that was evidenced by investments that I made, say, in Shopify, Hootsuite, uh, Desire to Learn. There was a number of them, and that was the thesis really there. And, you know, that... uh, you know, turned out to be uh, a very prudent um, bet. But I started to see the market starting to change. I saw the fragments of it as early as 2015 and did a lot of validation while I was at Omer's for the next two years. But really the problem that I was trying to solve is how do you get companies in their kind of final stage of growth from that hundred million dollars to the billion dollar plus companies and a couple of things associated with that is at the same time trying to solve that problem i also noticed that uh, the technology market had had really started to cross the chasm in 2015 and what i mean by that is uh up until then you really started to see the technology upstarts really trying to disrupt incumbents in their various industries. And they were disrupting it based on a technology-first approach. And they were tech folks, largely. Starting around 2015, and it started with financial services, you started to see the incumbents starting the fight back, or at least thinking about starting the fight back. And now what you're seeing, and again, I started to see the clear evidence in 2017, But by 2020 and super duper acceleration through COVID is we're seeing a world here, and I'll use Canada as an example. Every industry needs to embrace technology really in order to survive. And in many cases, the notion of what is a technology company is almost going away because every company will need to be a technology company to survive. So, so what I noticed was while I uh, focused in on investing on the classic technology market being SaaS and SaaS software or uh, hardware businesses, started to realize there is a great number of other industries, financial services, healthcare, logistics, you name it, that were adopting the technology and fighting against the incumbents 
Um, but they were not technology companies per se. And the interesting thing about these companies, as they're growing lightning fast, there really is no supply of capital to provide them with the fuel to grow from that $100 million to the billion dollars. And in particular, they weren't looking to go public. They were not looking for a controlled transaction with a private equity firm, but true growth private equity. And hence, that's the thesis of Mavericks. Wow, that's amazing. John, when we talk about Mavericks private equity, I'm sure there's some things you can tell us about, you know, the the the, the companies you 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 you're looking to invest in, and maybe some things you can't tell me about, like the companies you're investing in. Um, so tell me what the marketplace looks like in Canada, and what's your sweet spot? Absolutely, yeah, I, I can't give you specific names. Uh, we are uh, in diligence right now with uh, two particular companies. Uh, but our pipeline is actually bursting at the seams and overwhelming us, actually. Um, but I can give you kind of the average profile of the company. It's a company in a multitude of different industries. There are five specialty industries that we do focus in on. And it, about $100 million in revenue would be the average. Um, EBITDA, flattish, with perhaps slightly positive and uh, growing at about 20 to 50% with no real institutional capital, maybe the odd angels, but it's still founder-led and controlled. And they already understand that it is technology that is really their moat and why they're beating their competition. So it's not a technology company per se, but they've embedded it into their business and where our strength is is really understanding the power of technology to make your business you know bigger stronger faster you know with with greater uh, with great insights and what these investors uh, want is someone to come in from a minority perspective ideally in the same class of shares and be a true partner with them and the problem in Canada is that that product doesn't really exist. Um, there are some firms that might do it from time to time, but no one exclusively. And so uh, now that we've come into that space, we are just overwhelmed with the opportunities. Well, I would think one of the opportunities there as well is that if you're working with a class of organizations that haven't gone public, have never gone public, have, have never really dealt with investors before. I would think there's also some potential to just bring, in addition to the capital you bring, to bring um, a little bit more ambition and maybe a different type of discipline into the, in, into the executive ranks and just fire them up because they, as they embark on this new adventure, they may not be prepared to be uh, coming into this world, the world of disruption. So uh, is there also sort of a, a shot of adrenaline or attitude that you're giving them? Well, uh, Rick, you must be uh, listening into our uh, deal meetings because <laughs> uh, that is actually one of the biggest issues, which we, we knew, um, but it, it's, 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 it's really under the guise of governance. And when I say governance, uh, you know, 
it's really hard for a great entrepreneur that's built a business, say, to a hundred million dollars, and has has really made all the all the decisions, and now has this significant investor alongside with them. And one of the concerns that they do raise is the loss of autonomy and decision making. And one of the points that we do make, and we actually uh, have you know, sort of a, uh, a a handbook on how we execute governance, it's we're not taking the decision making power away from the entrepreneurs. In fact, that's what we're investing in. What we're really trying to do is you know, help where we can from a risk perspective uh, in the organization so that they're not blindsided by by things that they perhaps really haven't considered and having more brains around the table to think through that. And then number two, um, while you're doing that, also being a, a cheerleader at the same time, so this is kind of getting to your point, um, uh, you know, I love entrepreneurship and I love trying to get that entrepreneur to go from that hundred million to the billion dollars. But what worked to get from zero to a hundred is not the same thing from the hundred to the billion and bringing them concepts and ideas to really scale that at a level that they really haven't thought about before is really exciting to us. And that's where we could come in with a fresh perspective, not forcing this upon the, the entrepreneur, but rather saying, here's our collective experience. You know, I've, I've had 30 years of, of this experience. And the only thing I say is I've just made a lot more mistakes than most people. And number two, I've also seen a lot more mistakes than most people that entrepreneurs have made and sharing that and giving the ideas. And that's number one. And number two is sometimes in our investment, you know, we will, we will, uh, 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 provide capital for secondary sale of their shares. And the reason why I do that is to help, uh, increase the ambition and so it might sound backwards, but if you had uh, all of your wealth tied to one public stock, you know, your advisor is going to say, hey, dude, you got to diversify. It's the same thing with somebody who's owning, uh, you know, a hundred million dollar business. So we take some chips off the table, set it aside, hopefully don't buy planes and islands so that you're not paying attention to your business, but use this. So you can go and double down and triple down and go extremely hard and kick ass in the world. Like that's what I want to see. And, and don't do this in the, you know, this perceived polite Canadian way, but going with massive ambition and you just look at a company like Shopify, like they continually disrupt their own ideas and they have this incredible ambition. And that's what I invested in back in 2013. And that's the sort of thing that I hope that, you know, we could give some, some push to a bunch of other entrepreneurs who really want to be the next kind of Shopify's in Canada. Right. It seems, you know, just incredible that we can have this type of 
help available in Canada that, that we've built up the this expertise in not just in technology but in strategy and 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 leadership that we have this resource in Canada. Um, I presume the Americans have lots of private equity funds that do this sort of thing, but uh, but I believe you're the first here. That is correct. There's some really good U.S. firms. There's no question. In fact, um, right now our biggest competition is the U.S. firms, and and you know they're very very good firms uh, that have been doing this for years and have great resources. But one thing that fears a lot of these Canadian entrepreneurs, and it's not to have a Canadian anchor investor in place. Um, and the reason is, uh, I know I know this sounds very Canadian, but it, it's it's a great downside protection um, uh, idea because we're not going anywhere. Number one, number two, the greatest returns that I've had in my career, I have partnered up with a top U.S. venture capital firm that I'm personally very close with. And there was about eight or 10 of them. And you could see this pattern and all the investments that I made, but it was very purposeful. And it wasn't one was better than the other. If you get the best of one country, the best of another country, you, you got more brains at the table, you have different networks, et cetera. I think the entrepreneur gets such a rich experience. And so what we're finding right now with a lot of these entrepreneurs they have said that such and such private equity firm in the U.S. has been knocking at their door very, very hard. And we're either getting asked, would we partner with them or would we be the lead and just do it solo? And so so uh, when I hear that, this is when I know that our our thesis is resonating. What's the secret of raising money for a startup, for that uh, seed round or series A or B round? Um, you say there's tons of money in the marketplace, but they don't feel it. <laughs> how, how would they, how, back in the day, how would they get on your radar? Well, the same way they do right now, they just reach out. And uh, I mean, we're going much more later stage and I'm still tracking a lot of these companies because they may be much larger growth companies. But but speaking to your constituency on the startup entrepreneurs, um, you know, when you're raising capital, um, it's an exercise in which you get turned down 99% of the time. And so by that definition, um, it is a depressing thing to do. And it's very disappointing when entrepreneurs don't get treated with the level of respect that they should, just simple responses, et cetera. Or um, uh, I know it's particularly frustrating when they deal with uh, venture capitalists that not only don't understand their business, but don't seem to understand business at all. And I hear a lot of those comments. And all I would say for the entrepreneur is that there has never been a greater time in the history of the world than right now to get financing. But it's not going to be like this forever. I think we're already in borrowed time. And there will be someone out there who understands your story. 
And the one thing that I say to all entrepreneurs is just be authentic. Don't ask me, what do you think that they want to hear? If that's what you're starting to do, you're already with the wrong venture capitalist in front of you. Like, you know, uh, I never cared really about a business plan per se. You know, I would flip through the deck, but I wanted to really understand the personality um, and the passion of the particular entrepreneur. 70% of the investment decision is based on the founder or founding team. And 30% is basically on everything else. So don't fail on that. Uh, you know, humanity, authenticity, and the passion of what problem you're trying to solve. And more importantly, in my view, why do you have a, that passion? What happened to you in order to get to that point? And those are the sorts of discussions that I love to have, because then you really understand when things get tough, and they do 99% of the time, are you investing in folks that have the metal to withstand, to pivot, to think around the problem, et cetera? I mean, that's what folks should be focused in on. And again, um, uh, you know, just be patient and, you know, kind of one of the problems from the media perspective is, you know, all the celebrations are done with all these huge, massive raises. And it's pretty exciting for them. But that's all these entrepreneurs here. And for the 99% that don't get funded, I'm sure they're saying, why me? What's wrong with me? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's getting that right match. But I can assure you, a lot of those companies that are getting funded, I am raising my eyebrows of, I can't believe that company got funded. Uh, so, you know, and, and what the hell do I know anyway? Uh, so, so all I'm just saying is never get discouraged and continue the good fight. Right. As an entrepreneur, and so many of them are young and, you know, haven't had a ton of different life experiences. So how do they demonstrate resilience, persistence, the ability to withstand because so many of them are just starting out. Yeah, it's it's a little hard. That's why you have to delve into their history, uh, <laughs> right. you know, and you find you find some of the most incredible stories on how they got you know to school and how they funded it, and you know finding the 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 tenacity. So there is other ways, but it is it is difficult. But I can tell you, you know, there are also red flags where I get concerned. So let me give you one example. And for every entrepreneur there, please delete this in this deck in your deck if you have it, where you show that if you make this investment in five years, we're going to sell and you're going to make this amount of money. Two things. Number one, thank you very much, but I'll figure out myself how much money I'm going to make and at what values. <laughs> Number two. I want to invest in businesses that want to be there for the long haul and are not looking for the quick cash exit. What you're telling me is that you're focused in on the end financial result. It is a red flag for me. And, and what I really want to see is you're going to build this incredible business and uh, you're not going to stop. 
and you know I'll worry about my exit and I just can't you know forget the words of Toby Lutke you know when uh, in a two and a half hour coffee meeting with him and I and he, he's the founder of yeah Spotify. he's the founder of Shopify Sorry. yes and he just you know here's a German immigrant who came to Canada because he fell in love with a Canadian and basically he told me uh, I'm gonna solve this problem that really pisses me off and it was really why can't an artisan sell their goods on the web very easily number one and number two and he said and i want to do this for the rest of my life and i just want to build the biggest business uh, possible and i wanted to stay in canada like i fell in love with him in that time we did the deal and closed the deal in 21 days from that discussion. Wow. Um, and, you know, you might say, like, how much diligence did you actually do? Well, when you saw the business model and how it operated, it was one of the most incredible uh, money machines I've ever seen, number one. But when you have folks like that, and then Harley Finkelstein, uh, you know, and just so many of them that were oper- or thinking like that, that's how you know as an investor, at least how I know, that I have a winner on my hands here. I just had no idea it was going to be that big of a winner. Fantastic. John, we've talked a lot about resilience and persistence, but you had this um, incredible life-altering uh, experience that has proven your uh, resilience, your ability to bounce back. And I'm wondering if we can talk about that a little bit. So about a year ago, you had a biking accident, I think out on yes. the country road somewhere. And that yes. kind of shook up the, 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 the launch of Mavericks a little bit. Tell me what happened. Well, uh, you know, in the middle of COVID, uh, very little traffic, uh, you're inside a lot. And, uh, what other better thing to do than to, uh, improve your cycling so i am a very committed cyclist and uh on that particular day in september um i had uh uh, taken my midweek half day ride where i would go out uh, you know typically 100 kilometers or so and have a nice ride usually by myself and on this particular gorgeous day uh uh did ride from uh toronto where i live uh, I have a neat way or a safe way how to get out of the city because I'm always paranoid on on drivers that don't really pay attention to cyclists and got out in the country road on my way to uh, Stouffville and I was about 5k away from Stouffville when uh, right from behind I was taken out by a tractor trailer um, that jackknifed um, right behind me on a two-lane highway and i mean i don't know the exact facts but you know for some reason wasn't paying attention uh tried to uh get around me by going into the other lane but there was uncommon uncoming traffic and uh decided to slam the brakes that's what i was told what i heard is i'm riding in a gorgeous day and I hear the slamming of air brakes right behind my left ear. And all that's going through my head is, what idiot is riding right off my back tire? 
Um, and just as I was processing that, I felt the uh, tractor trailer uh, hit me in the back. Uh, so I didn't know whether that, I didn't know at the time that that was actually the, the trailer part. I thought it was the front of the uh, tractor trailer. That's what but you'd never, expect, right? <laughs> yeah. And so what, what happened is I actually had two incidences of, of major trauma. I had the trauma of getting hit in the back, which uh, shattered my vertebrae and uh, you know, confined me now into a wheelchair um, but secondly, the landing, I flew through the air and shattered my pelvis in six places, broke all of my ribs in multiple places, lost half my blood, lost, uh, a kidney, lost, uh, one lung. Uh, thank God that came back. Um, and so, and, and, the, and it goes on and on and on the, 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 the confusing part of the diagnosis is the four doctors who largely take care of me just still don't understand why I didn't die on impact because the trauma in my body was so great and so disruptive. Um, and they, you know, so they were surprised it wasn't on impact, but they fully expected that I was going to die within the first 48 hours. And in fact, my surgery was delayed for 36 hours because they felt that another surgery would be a third trauma to my body and there's just no way that I could take it. And by 36 hours, they made the decision that, well, if he's going to die, he's going to die. We're going to give it a chance. And I think they were all surprised that I came out the other end uh, surviving. Wow. Wait a <laughs> We, 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 we all feel a little bit better just be able to be alive after hearing that story. Um, yes, it, that's it, right. Now, now they, they thought you might pass away. Uh, they, I think they said you would never walk, but I think you're yes. you, you know, saying maybe that's not the case. Yeah, maybe that's not the case because um, I was diagnosed with the worst diagnosis uh, that you can have um, uh, for, for a, uh, spinal cord injury victim. And I am just undergoing very intense physio six days a week, usually three to four hours a day or so, you know, and, oh, and by the way, I launched a 500 million us dollar private equity fund in the middle of that. So Everyone I am, does. I, I am the glutton for punishment. So either I am the stupidest person alive or I am the most stubborn or, uh, you know, and it's probably a combination of the two. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I, I can't help but, you know, say how grateful I am that, that, that you have survived and you've survived with uh, your ambitions intact and still caring enough to to do these great things how would you say this accident and the experience you've been through since how has it changed your approach to business or to life well what it's done is you know at this stage of my career you know you don't really care about money anymore or you don't care about status or fame but you really want to do things that you know in particular uh, make the world a better place for your kids and uh, boy, you know, almost dying, uh, really hits that home. 
and you know it allows you to really focus in on what are the small things in life and you know before i would focus in on you know going on fancy trips or fancy dinners or you know whatever the entertainment was uh, now just being home with my kids and just seeing their day-to-day activities is what's really important for me so when i see an entrepreneur, and this is why purpose and passion are so important to me. Um, the reason why I came back to raise the fund, despite you know the hell that I went through, is I wasn't finished that duty, that sense of duty that I had to to focus in on getting that third stage of the hundred million to the billion plus revenues for entrepreneurs. And I would just simply say to entrepreneurs like. You know, I kept on telling you about this passion issue. Um, boy, did I actually have to do something that really had to illustrate how important it was. I never expected to do that. Um, but it feels good to, you know, when I say this to an entrepreneur now, they don't even question what I'm saying. They kind of just say, Jesus. You know, you're here talking to me and uh, you're a living example of what you're just saying. And so I think the entrepreneurs, you know, do take it to heart. And, you know, uh, you know, it is family first for me, but my passion for entrepreneurship and the future of this country have never been more important. And, you know, I have no idea, you know, if I've cut years off of my life and probably have, so I'm under a little bit of a sense of, you know what, I got to get this thing here done. Um, and you know what, I, I am in the later stages of my career, but I can tell you from an energy and passion perspective, uh, there is no reduction whatsoever. Wow, that's so inspiring. I feel I just have to thank you on behalf of all entrepreneurs, uh, the ones, including the ones you haven't met yet um, for the work you're putting into this effort for entrepreneurs at all levels and for the advancement of the the, the innovation community, uh, which is so important and for the fact that, you know, it's still a priority to you after you, after what you've done. And I imagine it's kind of helped your focus a little bit too. Uh, yes, it has, because I have very, very little time available for much anything else. And so... I really try to make it count and it's the family part uh, that I need to be extremely focused and I have uh, teenage kids and uh, you know they're not going to be uh, living with me I think and you know in the next number of years and so um, you know there's a little bit of when they see with what I'm doing and, and they're starting to understand entrepreneurship and I see them starting to get excited about it, it actually really enriches my soul. Uh, and it kind of makes me feel, okay, you know what? Uh, I am serving a purpose and you know, it, even though it's the purpose of helping the particular entrepreneur, I'm really, uh, focused in on helping my kids really. And by, by increasing wealth of this nation and job opportunities, my kids have a greater future. Oh, and by the way, it starts to, uh, solve the issues for, you know, hundreds or thousands of similar kids. So that makes me feel really good.
I think you're making a difference for the for for their kids as well. So that's so important. Correct. Yes. Yes. And you're a lucky man because if I start talking about entrepreneurship, my kids roll their eyes and say, "Oh, Dad's talking about entrepreneurship again." <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, Can I leave the I, table? I, <laughs> I don't. Can I tell you a funny story on that? Sure. Uh, so my son would would he's 15 years old and he would do the same thing, and. Uh, 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 I had arranged uh, the, uh, my son's teacher for introduction to business had asked whether I would speak to their class, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 kids or so. And I was happy to do it. And my son, you know, could not care less, uh, <laughs> whether I did it or not. And there is one of his buddies is this precocious business guy. This, this kid's very impressive and just, uh, thinks of entrepreneurs as, as rock stars is very unusual. And, uh, the teacher had told him, okay, so John Ruffalo is going to be speaking. And the kid went to my son and said, holy shit, that's your dad. He goes, that's the guy that invested in Shopify, but he knew my bio. And, uh, my kid all of a sudden was like, oh, so like my dad's kind of cool. And then all of a sudden he started paying attention and started to realize uh, only because one of his good buddies was impressed by it. So it was a little bit of a fluke there. Peer pressure. It's our greatest national. Exactly. Right. I'll, I'll take it. I, I don't take my, I'll take that. John Ruffalo, we usually end these podcasts by asking our guests for one more piece of advice that entrepreneurs could take and put into action in their businesses immediately. You've seen the good practices, uh, the best practices. You've seen the worst practices. What final piece of advice do you have for our entrepreneurs? You know, one of the pieces of advice that I have, and I would say it's really in that scaling up time, there there is this myth that um, you know once you've built your business and getting it going, you should be hiring professional management to really take it to the the next stage. And I, I don't subscribe to that theory. There are good examples where um, the particular entrepreneur. Uh, clearly made a decision that they had zero interest in actually running a business because they just love to deal with product. And I think that's a great situation. But I see far too many times where investors uh, demand the removal of the current leadership team and bringing in their own hired guns. And, you know, to me, if it's your dream to run a billion dollar business by you building it, I'd say make it your life's work and don't listen to uh, outside forces, particularly uh, uh, investors. And one thing that I like to remind entrepreneurs as, as they go out, an investor is a professional service provider, just like an accountant, lawyer, etc. And they're serving the entrepreneur. And by serving the entrepreneur, we're serving the capital and providing advice, et cetera, so that the entrepreneur is able to pay us back 
for the use of that capital at you know an extremely high rate of interest really at the end of the day and and if you think about it that way then um by you as the investor really trying to help um uh, the entrepreneur uh uh, is aligned with you because it creates wealth for them. And far too many times I just see this antagonistic relationship. And at the end of the day, you entrepreneur, you are the owner of that business. And when you're looking for investors, yes, money is important, but choose really wisely who uh, is your investor because it's just like a marriage and it's for better or for worse. Right. Sounds like the same rationale should apply to an entrepreneur choosing the investor as to investors choosing what companies to invest in. Look for that resilience, that passion, that personality. Absolutely. I absolutely goes both ways. And I think right now people just get so enthralled on the check size and the valuation that they sort of forget of all the human stuff. And if things go well, and you know these deals are priced to perfection then you have nothing to worry about but like i said 99% of the time things don't and that's where people forget about all right john ruffalo from mavericks private equity thank you so much for sharing this it's been an hour but i, I it, it's raced by uh, this hour with us um, and telling your story and sharing the challenges that you that, that you've gone through and uh, the ambitions that you have uh, we're all rooting for you uh, to to make uh, uh, some, some big changes <laughs> in this economy yes. with, with 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 the leadership that you've shown and and the capital that you've amassed at mavericks so we'll be watching you very closely over the next little while thank you so much thank you so much rick Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.